This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is BK Bass. I first met BK on Twitter and learned about his work as a writer, publisher, and world builder when I interviewed him for my blog. I've also read some of his books, and one of his recent books, What Once Was Home, is a post-apocalyptic story about an alien invasion. Without saying too much, this story is not what you think. It's an outstanding story, and I highly recommend it. For this interview, BK joins me to talk about some issues that this podcast is currently focused on, and that is nuclear war, chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction, their effects, and how they are employed in battle. Dead Hand Radio is currently on a run exploring the Cold War and its impact on our world, our culture, and the future of war. How are you doing, man? How are things going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Just, you know, dealing with the uh, the apocalypse here. Yeah. Interesting times we live in, to be sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely one way about it. Yeah. My wife's a little freaked out because we're both self-employed. Right. And uh, business has pretty much come to a screeching halt. Yeah. Because, uh, you yeah. know, we live in Vegas, and Vegas the whole town is just basically on lockdown. Yeah. That's what I heard. I heard MGM shut down all their casinos and I don't think there's a casino open on the strip anymore. I think they've all shut down. Yeah. Yeah. That's the safe thing to do. It's going to be, it's going to be like that for a while. Yeah, no doubt. It's a couple weeks, a couple weeks at least. And, uh, it's just, uh, that man, I mean, we got some savings, but we're going to go through that pretty quick if we don't have some kind of supplement or yeah. whatever. Uh, did you see yesterday they were talking about um, sending checks out to everybody? Oh, no, I did not see that. That's good Yeah, news. there was a press conference yesterday with, uh, you know, the, the whole, you know, administration team. But uh, Steve Mnuchin, the uh, Treasury Secretary, he was at the forefront of it. Um, they're talking about you know, within, you know, the next couple of weeks, you know, getting money out into people's hands. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I know nice. they're, they're talking with the Senate. So it's, it's on the Hill right now negotiating the terms of that and everything. One thing I did hear that was a little spot of good news is that they've uh, submitted a proposal to HUD, the housing authority yeah. to put a moratorium on evictions for people yeah. missing their mortgage payments or rent payments yeah, that, yeah that's that that's going to help people oh yeah yeah they're, they're definitely seem to be you know taking it seriously and realizing that uh you know the, the, the average person is not prepared for this no no the way the economy and you know for, through no fault of their own just the way the economy has been for so long people you know just live paycheck to paycheck definitely yeah and that's a shame trying to, trying to shame. do something about it now Hopefully something like that. I mean, you know, back in 2008, it was pretty dire. Things were, things were pretty bad. Our businesses, again, took a pretty big, big beating, but we got through that. And, you know, early on, my wife and I learned that you got to have a savings and you got to be debt free, you know, basically debt free. I mean, we have car payment, mortgage payment, stuff like that, but most people don't have that mentality and yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're yeah, a lot of people don't even have 
the the ability to do that you know a lot of people just you know barely get by true that's true even people work a two three jobs man yeah yeah just to, just to put food on the table yeah. yeah what do you do besides uh writing is that your is that your primary gig yeah yeah that and the uh the publishing company you know that's that's, that's amazing man job. that's yeah. awesome congrats yeah. on that so you're well, self-employed you. too from here forward we're going to talk about your military career okay. and um what you did and how it relates to what the topic of the podcast is and mm-hmm. that is existential threat to life on earth and yeah. things around that so uh how you doing bk i'm doing good i'm doing good good appreciate you taking your time uh to spend some time with me and talk about your military service and i want to give you a, a huge shout out and a thank you for that service oh thank you thank you for having me on the show i appreciate it absolutely Absolutely. And, and I'm looking forward to uh, letting you have a chance to share your experiences with the audience. So to start that off with, uh, would you please tell us um, which branch of military you were in and how long did you serve? Um, I was in the, uh, the U.S. Army. I was a member of the Chemical Corps and I served from 1997 to 1999. Can you tell us where you were stationed? Yeah, I did basic training and... Uh, AIT, the Advanced Individual Training, both at Fort McClellan, Alabama. After that, I was stationed in Fort Drum, New York. Okay, and were you activated um, during that time, or was it mostly right there in New York City? Or, I mean, state of New York? Yeah, yeah, it was upstate New York. You know, uh, it was, you know, before, um, you know, 9-11 and all that happened. So um, it was just, you know, training. It was all domestic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I spent a little bit of time at Fort Bragg. We spent a couple of weeks there on a, uh, a training thing, um, but never went uh, overseas or anything. Okay. Well, I, I mean, people are in peril even during training missions. So there's uh, there's always always a, a threat to life when you're in the military, even if you're not in a wartime situation. So oh, yeah, uh, safety is always a big concern. Um, you know, whenever we did training, you know, and some of the training was dangerous, um, you know, safety was always the number one priority. So. Mm-hmm. And so your, uh, your technical title or job title was, uh, can you tell me what it was? Yeah, it was a chemical operations specialist was the, okay. the actual uh, occupational title. Okay. And one of the things that I mentioned in the in the announcement in the announcement for this podcast was that we're going to be talking about NBC. Right. And I kind of left that as a teaser because mm-hmm. a lot of people I'm sure don't understand what that is. Could mm-hmm. you tell us what that what that is and what your job was? Yeah. Excuse me, that stands for uh, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Weapons. Um, You know, another acronym that gets thrown around that people might be more familiar with from the news is WMD, Weapons of Mass Destruction. Um, The job basically, you know, deals with that, deals with the um, response to it more than anything. Uh, So the the Chemical Operations Specialist in the U.S. Army, um, there's a lot of different roles involved with that. There's reconnaissance roles and decontamination roles. Um, depending on the unit you're talking about, there's different specialties involved with that. Um, the unit I was in specialized more in decontamination. Um, and there's also um, kind of an ancillary, but it was also a primary part of our mission, was a um, 
uh, smoke generation, which is basically creating smoke screens to cover trip movements. Okay. Cool. Um, so we had um, Humvees that had smoke generators on the back of them, basically would uh, burn um, diesel and mix uh, like an oil, uh, kind of like a vegetable oil, uh, with these huge tanks of uh, smoke oil that would burn and put out these huge clouds of smoke. So like if you had um, you're landing troops from like helicopters in a valley or something, we would cover the valley in smoke so that, you know, people can see, you know, where the helicopters were landing and the guys were moving. Well, yeah, I've always wondered how, uh, how that was achieved because I mean, in movies you see it and mm -hmm. you see the cloud cover, the smoke cover, but yeah. you think, you know, you don't know where that smoke's coming from. Yeah. And so yeah, somebody that, has that to create that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. There's, um, you know, we had Humvees because we were attached to a light infantry. Um, we were uh, attached to the uh, 10th Mountain Division, which is a light infantry division. Mm. Um, attached to um, uh, your mechanized divisions, your armor, um, they have uh, armor personnel carriers that mm. are set up for that. It was uh, the M113, uh, one, uh, I think. Um, it's been a while, um, and they might have upgraded. They might have upgraded that equipment since I was in, because that was uh, Vietnam era APCs mm -hmm. that they were using. Um, they may have upgraded since then. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the equipment from the uh, Vietnam era is still in use today. Consider, oh. I mean, I mean, even back to um, when was the B fifty two first uh, put into service? Was that sure. back in that the was 50s? late World War late World War two. I think. Oh, was it? I thought it was like uh, the late 50s. Mm, like I could be mid wrong. Mid to late 50s. I'll have to look that up because I'm uh. I'm curious about that now. But, uh, well, of course, that wasn't your area. You were in the, the ground troops, not in the Air Force. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and hearing you talk about what you do, it made me wonder if there was a nuclear disaster in the in the United States, or even abroad, would your unit be activated to respond to that? Yes, um, you know, chemical units would respond to that. Um, you know, the, the unit I was in, um, you know, would have been responsible for a decontamination situation as far as, um, you know, vehicles and um, personnel, you know, getting them cleaned up, like, um, let's say if like a, a unit of vehicles moved through an area, um, we would be responsible for cleaning all those vehicles, getting contamination off of it, getting contamination off the troops. Cause you can't be in protective clothing, get exposed and then just take it off because mm -hmm. you're just contaminating yourself. So there is a routine for, you know, decontaminating the gear and taking it off, decontaminating the person, you know, step-by-step -step process. Mm -hmm. Um, and there would also be reconnaissance units would, um, be responsible for moving in and evaluating the situation. Um, you know, you hear a lot, you know, you talk about um, nuclear war, about fallout and stuff like that. Uh, one of the key responsibilities would be to evaluate, you know, the um, actual fallout as far as you can measure the, the height of the mushroom cloud, determine the yield of the weapon, whether it was an air burst or a ground burst, and then, um, compare that to the wind speed and direction and you can determine where the fallout's going to go and how long it's going to take to get there and then you can notify the population in that area if they need to evacuate wow so is would that um 
be a similar, would you have a similar response to a situation that involved a nuclear power plant accident or possibly even a, mm -hmm. with a dirty bomb, say, in, in a highly populated city? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the method for um, evaluating the circumstances might be different. Uh, it's like I said, with like a nuclear explosion, um, you know, the training we had was based off of, you know, a bomb going off, basically, and you have that mushroom cloud and we had um, a card we would carry around in our pocket that had all the math on it, and, you know, what to measure and how to do the math and determine which way it's going. Um, without that mushroom cloud, you know, there's other ways that they would have to evaluate that. But again, your, your wind speed and direction and stuff like that is going to tell you, you know, what direction that's all going to go in. Um, you know, your fallout comes from debris. So with like a, a nuclear meltdown kind of situation, it's going to be different. It's not going to be as widespread as it would be with a nuclear bomb because it's sucking all that debris up into the air and then throwing it out. <clears throat> so you get a worse of a fallout situation um, as opposed to like your nuclear power plant is going to be, you know, emitting your radioactive waves and stuff. But then, you know, the the ground nearby is going to be irradiated and then the wind's going to pick up and start blowing that around. So you have a lot of similar concerns. So when, uh, do you remember, well, this, the, the Chernobyl accident would have been before your time, but the Fukushima mm -hmm. accident was after you had already had some training and experience in that, in, in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, do you, did you look at, how did you look at that Fukushima incident from a, from a perspective of somebody who actually would be asked to respond to that situation? What went through your mind? Like, what were you thinking about the responders, um, the victims that were suffering in that area? What what kind of thoughts went through your mind? Mm, I, I mean, the, the first thing would be, you know, the, the, the workers and like you said, the responders, the, the level of exposure being so high. Um, there's not much equipment that can protect you from direct radiation. Um, you know, you go get an x-ray and they put like the lead apron in your lap, stuff like that. You can't walk around in a lead suit to protect you from direct radiation. Um, you know, your, your protective gear is going to protect you from the fallout more than anything, you know, the debris floating around in the air. Um, but the people that had to go in there and rescue people and, you know, try to deal with the situation, they were just exposed to all that radiation. Um, I don't know the numbers or anything, but I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, got sick and died, you know, because they responded to that. The other thing that went through my mind was because it's so close to the, the water there in Fukushima, um, the Pacific was contaminated and we're still seeing to this day, the spread of radiation through the ocean. Um, and that's, you know, not going to go away in many, many lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah. And the really scary thing about Fukushima is that there are so many mixed stories uh, coming out of that area, which you don't even know what's true and what's false. Mm. Because some people I've heard say that, like you said, that the radioactivity could potentially contaminate a, a large portion of the entire Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other people that are saying that the cleanup effort is well underway and people are actually moving back into the area. I mean, which one is true? It could right. they both be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, last, last I heard, there's still hot isotopes in the reactor. 
Yeah. Um, so it, it's, I mean, all these years later, it's still a containment situation. That's what I've um, heard because as well. you, it's impossible to go in and shut it off at this point. It, it's, it's a chain reaction that's going to keep going. Um, and so all of that contamination is still bleeding out into the ocean and contaminating the surrounding area. So how could people be, I, I don't understand. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean they, they say that they have it contained, you know, and they, and they, you know, you, you pour feet and, you know, meters of concrete over it and hope that that, you know, blocks it all. But, um, you know, you, you get a couple of cracks and some water gets in there and then yeah. it flows back out and you have contaminations. And a few decades yeah. later from now, uh, you're going to end up with the situation Chernobyl's in where the dome that they have is crumbling, you know, mm -hmm. because of the, the radiation just causes the decay in that concrete to, mm -hmm. to increase exponentially over time. Yeah. So they, they have to take some drastic measures to cover that again with a new, yes. uh, some new structure that they're building. It's going to take a couple of years for them to complete that. Yeah. And when it's done, it's supposedly going to be able to operate as a, as an automated cleanup mechanism. They, they've got robots and stuff in there that are supposed to be able to clean up the area. Well, that's smart. Yeah. Cause so you, you were just saying, you know, that they were having to go back in there and build something new and it just comes back to what we were talking about with Fukushima that yeah. once you go in there, you're going to get exposure mm -hmm. and you know, it, it's, it's a dose over time kind of thing when it comes to radiation. So you can get a certain amount before it starts hurting you. <clears throat> but when you get a whole lot all at once, it's really dramatic at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't radiation never leave your system? It'll build up over time. Mm -hmm. so yeah. Yeah. That's why, why like, like I said, it's a, it's a dose over time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why um, like the, with the medical industry, you know, they'll, they'll try to control, you know, how many x-rays and CT scans you get and why the medical professionals, um, you know, when they take an x-ray, they have to go into that separate room or go around the corner. You know, one x-ray is not going to cause damage to you, but you know, if you're doing it five, six times a day for 20 years, you're going to get cancer eventually. And mm -hmm. yeah, the, 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 the effect is cumulative. It builds mm -hmm. up over time. Okay. And then unless, like you say, in the case where you're exposed to a massive dose, uh, and there have been instances of that happening where mm -hmm. it results in, you know, basically people turning into goo. It'll, it'll cause tissue breakdown. It can cause, you know, blistering burns. Um, you know, the, the thing that usually, you know, organs just shut down. Um, you know, lungs, heart, you know, your, your organs just, there's so much tissue damage that they just can't function properly. Um, things just shut down. What causes the damage from radiation to the cells? I'm, I'm definitely not, um, you know, uh, have, have the, the, the medical training or like the nuclear physics knowledge to be really specific about it. Um, but I, I just, I do know that like the, the waves basically, you know, as they pass through, they cause tissue damage. They cause cellular structure to break down. They cause, um, you know, the bonds between molecules to break down. You know, basically just things fall apart mm -hmm. is the, 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 the basic idea of it. And it's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. Yeah. yeah. 
Understood. Um, I mean, I appreciate you trying to take a crack at that. I don't understand the science of it either. I was just curious how much, yeah. uh, if you knew any more about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I know a little more about the science of, uh, of chemical weapons, actually, like nerve agents and stuff like that, than I do the nuclear part. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the nuclear part, you know, it gets so complicated because you're talking about atomic structures and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so the, uh, and chemical is another big part of what you did as a chemical mm -hmm. operations specialist. Yep. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about the, the chemical side of it? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, chemical weapons is a whole different ball of wax, really. You know, you don't have, um, you know, the, the big blast and everything like you do with, uh, with a nuclear bomb. Um, you know, chemical weapons are bad because it, it's, it's a silent killer. You know, there's no, you can't usually can't you can't smell them um you can't see it you know it's, there's no big green cloud of poison floating through the air like you would you know you know envision from like you know like a movie or something like that um it's completely invisible hmm. um and you don't know you've been exposed to it until it's too late you know once you start showing symptoms there's not much you can do about it um, and, uh, like nerve agents are, are one of the big ones. And mm -hmm. you know, that's like what the, uh, the, the Nazis used in World War II, you know, with sarin and the gas, you hear about the gas chambers and stuff yeah. in the concentration camps, they use sarin. And then, uh, VX was developed at a later time and they, they, all nerve agents do a similar thing where basically the, the way your brain chemistry works is your neurons are sending signals to each other, you know, telling your body to do stuff. Um, and there's chemicals in there called inhibitors that are controlling the flow of those chemicals. And what a nerve agent does is it deactivates the inhibitors. So all of those signals basically get turned all the way up. So all of your body's auto autonomous functions start ramping up and working overtime. Uh, so the, like the first symptoms you'll notice is um, uh, mucus memories will start working overtime. So like drooling runny nose, um, teary eyes, things like that. Um, it's going to work up into loss of um, bodily functions you can normally control, vomiting, um, involuntary urination, defecation, things like that. Um, muscle spasms um, will start you know, with like twitching, like your, your forearm might start twitching, something like that. It'll work its way up to seizure level muscle contractions. Um, your breathing and your heart rate will become vastly accelerated. Um, and usually, you know, when somebody dies from a uh, nerve agent attack, it's either going to be a heart attack or their back muscles will actually spasm so hard that they'll break their own spine. Wow. That's kind of trippy. I didn't know yeah, all that. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we saw a trading video when I was in the army. It was one of those old ones from the 1950s. You know, it was black and white and had the, the, the grain and the film and everything. Mm -hmm. And they exposed a goat to a nerve agent. Uh, so we actually got to see this process happen in reality to a goat. Um, I won't describe it in detail, but, you know, all, all the things that I just described, you know, happened to this goat. It wow. was absolutely morbid. It's just terrifying. Um, probably one of the worst ways a person can probably die. Are there, uh, four, okay. So there's a thousand questions that I have, but the, the <laughs> first one I have is, are there any measures that you can take if somebody's exposed to that and you, mm -hmm. you know it right away that you can inject them? 
yeah, or there some is, kind of treatment to stop the, the effects? Yeah, there's actually uh, a couple of chemicals that, um, you know, everybody in the military carries around and, you know, they'll have a, uh, like a big satchel strapped to the link that's got their gas mask in it. There's also going to be a couple of injectors. Um, the first one's atropine, um, which is actually like a sedative. It slows down your heart. Uh, so like I said, most people that die from a, a nerve agent contamination are going to die from a heart attack. Mm-hmm. The atropine slows that down. So it slows everything in your body down, um, but mostly slows down your heart rate. So that kind of counteracts that. Um, there's a second chemical. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, um, but that actually will work on cleaning the chemical out of your system. Mm, okay. Um, you have to catch it really early and depending on the amount of contamination um, and like you, you can breathe in some of the vapor or you can come into actual skin to skin, skin contact with the liquid. Um, so depending on how bad the contamination is, whether that's going to be effective or not, is a big question. Okay. And even with that, that's like a first aid step. Uh, you still need, um, you know, medical attention after that. And possibly hospitalization. More than likely. Yeah. 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 yeah pr- pretty much in every case. So in a, in a combat situation, you're obviously prepared. You've got gas masks um, mm-hmm. at the ready. You've got the NBC suits that you can put on if, if you know an attack is imminent. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got countermeasures that you guys have trained for nonstop mm-hmm. yeah. where you, you, know, you, you hear the, the alarm, gas, gas, gas. You put right. on the suit. You put on the gas mask, put on the suit. Mm-hmm. If somebody's been exposed, they get the injections in their car, you know, they're hauled away. Yeah. So that's, yeah, there's also a uh, detection equipment. So there's, oh, okay. um, yeah, there, there was like, there's alarms and they've had those, I think they've been deployed since desert storm, um, where you have uh, chemical agent monitors and chemical agent alarms that will actually detect it in the air and alarm will go off and let you know, um, you know, if there's a chemical. So, so that's, that's your first warning. Mm-hmm. And what, what are the types of delivery methods <clears throat> that are utilized? Uh, I mean, I'm familiar with a couple of them. Uh, and, you know, there have actually been militaries around the world that have used those, uh, mm-hmm. like in bombs, in artillery. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what, are the, what, are, what are the main methods used for delivery? Yeah, an explosive device is usually the main method. Um, the, the original, when they first came out, mortars were the way they were usually deployed back in World War I. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, the U.S. Army Chemical Corps started off as a mortar battalion mm-hmm. in World War I and grew into an entire corps out of that. Um, so that was the original way. They can be loaded into artillery shells. Um, you know, it, it can be distributed in a number of ways. You know, the explosive makes it more widespread delivery. Yeah. And, and basically, it's a liquid. Um, and it's, it's um, I want to say, it's not stable state, but in a contained state. Uh, chemical weapons are usually a liquid. And um, depending on the weapon you're talking about, they have different evaporation factors. Like sarin evaporates really fast. Mm-hmm. So it spreads really fast, but doesn't last as long versus BX evaporates very slowly. So it's more persistent, but it doesn't spread as fast. Um, so your explosive basically is, is going to vaporize some of it. So it's going to put the gas in the air, but it's also going to throw the liquid around. And then the liquid's sitting on a leaf or the ground or the hood of a truck or something. And then it's going to evaporate and put more of that gas into the air. Um, you can have a bottle or a vial of it and dump it out 
you know, somewhere, and then it's going to start evaporating, and you've just contaminated a, an area depending on the wind. So the delivery method can be every, everything from pouring it out of a bottle to an explosive. All right. Okay. So you you were talking mostly about the uh, nerve agents, but at, mm -hmm. in World War One, they they also introduced blistering agents. Do they still mm -hmm. have those in use today? Uh, well, in use is, you know, definitely, um, uh, I would say, you know, it depends on who you talk to as far as the in use. In storage, yes. Okay. Um, in use, it depends on, you know, you're, you're looking at like, uh, you know, like Iraq has used them um, in, the, in recent history. Most people have not used them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just like nuclear weapons, chemical weapons are banned by the uh, Geneva Convention. Mm -hmm. um, so in most cases, people don't use them. But yes, we have them. I mean, we've got them stored up. There's mustard gas and other blister agents that, you know, are in national stockpiles around the world. Mm -hmm. And there's also uh, choking agents as another form. Phosgene is the most uh, common one of those. And, um, you know, blister agents basically, it, it causes you know what it sounds like blistering to your skin um and even like if you breathe it in it'll cause blistering inside your lungs and your your uh airway passages <clears throat> and that's you know horribly painful it doesn't always kill people actually unless it causes you to you know not be able to breathe from breathing it in um blister agents were more designed to remove people from the battlefield in form of casualties where you cause mass casualties and then more people have to react to that and deal with it and um it's also an area denial thing where you know if you know that it's there you can't go through that area mm -hmm. um and then phosgene uh, and choking agents um they basically cause your cells cell membranes to not pass oxygen um so basically you asphyxiate even though you're still breathing wow. and that's another chemical weapons in general are just terrifying i mean sure. it's it's you know horror movies don't even come close to the the kind of suffering you can go through when you're exposed to one of these and the interesting thing you hear about is you know you, there's there's such a big fear of a terrorist getting hold of a dirty bomb mm. and most people think of a dirty bomb as a as a nuclear weapon a small yield nuclear weapon that mm -hmm. disperses a, a large amount of radiation into a city or something but a dirty right. bomb could also be uh, a chemical weapon, could it, couldn't it? Well, I, I think the, the term dirty bomb does specifically address the radiation issue of uh, a, a nuclear device that does more radiation damage than um, physical damage. Um, but yeah, the, the threat of somebody, you know, a terrorist com coming into possession of chemical weapons or biological agents, you know, that's, that's also a very real concern. Um, probably the chemical weapons more so than the nuclear because the, the nuclear weapons are very, very hard to create. Mm -hmm. um, you can't just grab some uranium and make a nuke. You know, you, there's a process of making, uh, you know, enriched uranium or enriched plutonium where um, basically they, they have to refine this into very, very um, potent forms of the, uh, of the element. Um, and it takes an, an entire infrastructure to do that. You can't just do that in your garage. Uh, so, and it seems to me that we should be more aware of the threat of a chemical agent being dispersed um, than worried about an, a nuclear uh, device mm -hmm. being uh, being deployed. Uh, 
so what do you think why do you think that that is how come it's not talked about more that chemical agents are is it to keep the um, level of fear at in check um it could be that um it might just be that that nuclear weapons are so much more high profile and we have a history of worrying about them and i know you've been talking about the cold war lately here on the podcast mm -hmm. and you know for decades um, you know, we sat staring across the table at Russia, um, worried about who was going to throw the first nuke. Yeah. And it's kind of become part of our culture to worry about that. Um, I think that, and, and just the, and you look at popular culture too, you look at, uh, you know, books and movies and you know, you've got, you know, the, the, the day after the made for TV movie in the eighties, you know, talking about nuclear explosions and books like last Babylon that, you know, is a nuclear war. Um, you know, it's been popularized through fiction. And like I said, it, it's more high profile. You know, you can picture that flash and that big mushroom cloud and, uh, the shock waves and the heat and everything. You can't picture a chemical weapon because there's nothing to picture. Definitely. Um, the only popular culture example I can think of it is, um, oh, the movie The Rock with, um, had Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery in it. Yeah. Where some rogue army guys stole some uh, chemical weapons. And every scientific premise about the chemical weapons in that movie is absolutely wrong mm -hmm. for one um almost everything other than the fact that they had it in a missile and they could have distributed it over the city of san francisco with a missile that's true but the little green balls in the missiles wrong it would just be like in a metal canister mm -hmm. um but yeah every, everything else in that movie was absolutely incorrect about how chemical weapons actually work there was a uh, speaking of movies uh there was a good movie it's it, it's it's either at your door or right at your door and mm -hmm. it is about a, a it is about a chemical attack i think it's in yeah. la los angeles mm -hmm. and uh it's about this dude who's uh, a writer <laughs> actually yeah uh, and uh he's either a writer or a musician and he's out of work he's trying to get something going and his wife is at work in the city when they hear about the the uh attack that just happened yeah and at first they think it's nuclear so they they're afraid of radiation contaminating right. and they issue the warning to seal up you know basically turn your house into a bunker yeah protect yourself from the radiation and then it comes out that it's a chemical and mm -hmm. um this dude has spent the whole day keeping people from coming into his house sealing up his house and then he finds out that it was a chemical actually it does actually sound like he did the right thing because you know in the case of a chemical attack you would want to seal up as best you can mm -hmm. and if it was already inside there he died before he got a chance to finish sealing up the house anyway oh true yeah, yeah it, it, it takes minutes literally almost wow. exposed yeah okay. it's, it's almost instantaneous it's not something it's not like you uh, <laughs> get sick over a course of hours if there's chemical uh, you know, chemical exposure. Um, that's something that's going to happen within like 10 minutes. So, and uh, that brings up another question. Is it, is it something that if you're exposed to it and you get treatment for it right away and you get it out of your system, is it something that if you survive it 
and you get hit with another attack, is there a cumulative effect like there is with radiation? I, I don't think so. Um, again, not a medical professional, so I don't want to say for sure, but I, it's, you know, one of those things where it's, um, you know, it, it's going to do its damage all at once. So if, if it doesn't stay in your system, it doesn't, uh, and there, there's no building up immunity to it either. So on the mm -hmm. flip side of that, being exposed to it once doesn't help you out the next time either. Um, you know, unlike, you know, with uh, diseases and stuff, you know, you catch chickenpox once, you can't catch it again. Uh, you know, chemical poisons and stuff don't work that way. So, Okay. So, and this question is kind of off topic, but is, is that the same chemical they use for administering the death sentence? I don't think so. No, that is, um, God, it's a completely different set of chemicals they use for that. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the, the name of it off the top of my head. I have looked into that before, but no, it's different. They okay. don't use, uh, no. It's actually, you know, not legal to use that, those chemicals for anything, sir, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if the government had the idea of using that for the death sentence, it would be against international law. Okay. That was just a curiosity that popped up. Yeah. Uh, more well, that's a good question. Yeah, it's a really good question. But no, no, you couldn't do that. Okay. Um, and the, the danger of exposure to, like the stuff that they use in the death sentence, you have to inject somebody with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if somebody were to drop a vial of that, it wouldn't kill everybody in the room. But if okay. you had a vial of sarin and you dropped it, everybody in the room has died. Yeah. Um, so, okay, going back to your military service, uh, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to ask you, and I, I've asked this to a couple of other veterans that I know, mm -hmm. uh, during your time in the military, did you ever have a moment that you thought your life was in imminent danger or something that you were, you were faced with that could potentially hurt or kill a lot of people? Well, uh, you know, on the on the topic of chemical weapons, we actually had a training facility we had to go to. Um, and I wouldn't say that I, I felt my life was in an imminent danger because, you know, like I mentioned before, safety was always a big concern and there was a lot of procedure to this. Um, but we had a training facility we went through that had live chemical agents where we had to go in and detect and decontaminate live agents. Um, so we had to, to gear up in the full protective gear, the mask and everything, tape up with duct tape around the wrist and ankles, and uh, take an elevator ride a couple stories underground into this underground facility um, and go through a couple different training, uh, you know, different rooms and stuff. And, um, you know, they, they had, you know, guy technicians coming in and, and putting, you know, chemical chemicals out, you know, mm. in the room exposed. And we'd have to use the different gear and detect them and test them and then, you know, use the, the cleaning gear to decontaminate it. And, um, you know, one of them was, this, was a, a street, basically. It was this huge room and it was, you know, the fake facades of buildings and there was a wrecked Jeep on the corner and all this stuff. And we had to go th through the street and find, I mean, we didn't know where it was. There was puddles on the ground and all kinds of shit. Yeah. And we had to go through this urban environment and, find and decontaminate the chemicals to pass the uh, basically it was like a test um to pass through this so it was you know if somebody messed up you know if somebody goofed off or um you know like i said there's puddles on the ground if you the, these the chemical gear that they use in the military you can't get wet 
-hmm. it gets wet it doesn't work because it's all based on activated charcoal mm -hmm. uh so if you trip and you, your knee hits a puddle you're done you know that, that's going to be it so it was real you know it was a controlled environment but it was still a life and death situation where if you didn't do everything by the book somebody's going to get hurt um, they even have a medical facility inside that facility in case something happens. Mm -hmm. um, they have uh, doctors and nurses and medical staff on, on hand. <clears throat> and then the decontamination process coming out of there is intense and there's a huge incinerator there. Basically all the protective equipment as it comes off, it goes through these chutes into this huge incinerator and everything gets burnt. Um, uh, temperature, I can't remember the temperature, but it was so intense that it would actually destroy the uh, chemicals and stuff. And it goes through all these filters before it goes out in the air. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that was, that was a process. I mean, it, it just decontaminating, coming out of it, going through the steps of washing everything off, taking off the gear, you know, hopping into this scalding hot shower with nothing but a gas mask on, you know, trying to get rid of everything before you start breathing the open air again. Um, that process alone took about three hours mm -hmm. you know, after we were done with the work. Just the cleanup was three hours getting getting out of there safely, uh, going through all these different chambers and airlocks and things. Uh, I would say the biggest oh shit moment where I thought I was actually going to die, though, um, I was riding in the back of a Humvee on a recon mission uh, training up in New York. And uh, the private driving the Humvee didn't have much experience and lost control of it going through a puddle, ran into a ditch, and the thing almost flipped over with me sticking out of the top of it. Wow. Yeah, not, not as interesting as the chemical stuff, but that was probably the closest I came to thinking I was actually going to die because the thing almost flipped over on me. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, I did not let her drive back. <laughs> yeah, right. So the, the vehicle actually flipped, and you were like flipped onto its side yeah it was it was a, a humvee with a turtle shell mm -hmm. and i was in the top hatch with the m60 and um it was me the girl driving and the lt um you know him riding shotgun we were just on, our, on a recon mission he was mapping out where we were gonna do our next um decon the next day so we we're driving around and she, like i said she lost control of the humvee and tire went off in a ditch and the thing flipped onto its side in a ditch with me sticking out of the top of it um if it had you know gone all the way over it would have cut me in half so yeah fate or luck was on your side that day huh? something yeah yeah uh so during your time in the military uh you obviously learned a lot of life lessons mm -hmm. and um yeah. anything that you could share with the people that are listening to this that that you learned specifically that could help people if they're ever faced with a situation where there's a chemical or nuclear or even a biological threat that they're that they encounter oh boy that's a tough one because there's not much you can do if you're in that kind of situation um a lot of times like i said like with chemical weapons by the time you realize something's going on it's too late Mm -hmm. um you know one thing a lot of they don't show in movies was nuclear bombs though and something that yeah they, they had to drill into us because it's kind of counterintuitive um but when a nuclear explosion goes off there's two shock waves and they mm -hmm. go in different directions um so you, you expect the bomb goes off and a big shock wave comes out and all the debris flies by and you're ducking and covering you know you're laying on the ground um you know waiting for that to go by and then everything goes by and the debris stops falling. There's no more shockwave and you stand up and then you're dead because stuff hits you in the back. Mm -hmm. um, when the 
bomb goes off, especially with an airburst, it is so hot that it actually it completely obliterates every molecule, the oxygen, nitrogen, everything within a certain sphere of that explosion. It actually creates a vacuum like outer space. So after all that stuff goes out, that vacuum bubble has to collapse. And when it collapses, it pulls everything back in. Mm-hmm. So if there is a nuclear blast and you're taking cover and the shockwave goes by, wait, because there's going to be another one going in the other direction back towards the blast. That's pretty good advice right there. That's yeah, yeah a, lot, a lot of people don't realize it. And we, we had a test and they, they, they would say, blast, 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 and everybody dives on the ground. And then this one guy stands up and they're like, you're dead. Yeah. Is you wait? You have to wait for that second shockwave. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, if a nuke goes off and you're, you know, close enough to see the cloud, make sure you're upwind of it. Uh, you know, try to get a weather forecast or something if you can. Um, don't be downwind of it because that's where the fallout's going. Yeah. Yeah, and then don't look directly at the blast, or you'll be blinded. Yeah, yeah don't. Yeah, it, they go by pretty fast. If you hear it, don't look at it. Mm-hmm. um yeah that's kind of like a reflex thing it's hard to fight but yeah don't look at the blast because it'll it'll blind you um but yeah that, that debris thing it, if you're far enough away to survive a nuclear explosion the debris is going to be what you have to worry about if you're close enough for the the thermal wave the actual heat you're not going to make it anyway mm-hmm. um, but if you're far enough away to survive that that shock wave is what you have to worry about and debris and flying through the air and stuff like that. Um, that's the part of a nuclear blast. You can survive if you're far enough away. Okay. And then the aftermath, uh, if, you know, once the explosion is over and the fallout starts to come down, you don't want to go into those areas. Yeah. Like I said, you don't want to be downwind of it. And you want to be as far away from it as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a situation where there's only one that goes off, then just get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're going off all over the place, then that's a tricky situation, you know, trying sure. to figure out what's farthest away from, from what's happening. Um, but yeah, if it's just one, you just get the hell out of there. Yeah, and I don't want this to turn into a, an epic novel, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it would be interesting to talk about a little bit um, on uh what are what are the survival strategies to surviving after something like that happens mm. you know i mean in in one scenario if it was a single bomb most you know most people would understand just don't go into the affected area right yeah and there's still going to be infrastructure in other areas and there's still going to be organization to help tell you what to do um you know, in a situation where there's a lot and there's no infrastructure and there's nobody, no leadership, mm-hmm. the biggest thing is going to be contamination at that point. You know, if the blasts are over and you've made it through that, you know, avoiding the radiation is going to be the biggest thing. Um, so, okay, let me move on. Um, okay, so as a, as, well, what era did you grow up in? I know I asked you that question before, but... I, mm-hmm. Were, were you a, a child of the 80s, or did you grow up in the 90s? Uh, oh. 80s, yeah. 80s. Yeah, I was born in 78. Uh, so, you know, early years in the 80s, you know, teenager in the 90s. Okay, so you remember the era of uh, tear down this wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, basically, that was the end of the Cold War. So you, mm-hmm. you're familiar with the threat of the constant threat of nuclear war between mm-hmm. the U.S. and the Russians, how oh, that yeah. affected our culture. Uh, how did any of that impact you growing up? 
You know, I, I was really young at the time, but I would say the biggest thing I remember is you see, um, you know, the old videos from like the 1950s, the duck and cover videos. Mm -hmm. They play in schools, you know, if, if, you know, the flash goes off, you, know, you jump on your desk and cover your head. And, you know, we had those nuclear drills when I was in school, when I was in mm -hmm. elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they would show those videos and then, you know, there, this air raid siren would go off and we would jump under the desk and, you know, duck and cover. And, you know, we were young enough to think that that would actually help if that happened. Hmm. Um, which depending on the situation probably wouldn't. No. Um, but yeah, we, we actually went through those and, and, and I remember, you know, that, um, atmosphere of always, of just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. You were, you never knew, um, you know, when something was going to happen. And I think that the biggest memory I have was actually after it ended, um you know after the ussr broke up and you know you you go to school one day and there's a map on the wall and it's got this giant red blotch that says united soviet socialist republic mm -hmm. and then we went home for i think it was christmas vacation or summer vacation and then came back to school and the map was completely different there was like 13 new countries we had to learn you know ukraine and georgia and uh Czechoslovakia and I, we never heard of any of these before yeah. and and you know we were I don't know 10 11 12 13 years old at the time um you know so I'm not going home and watching the you know the evening news or anything so I was kind of aware of what was going on but I was young enough you know my parents weren't like sitting me down and making me watch you know this stuff so you know I went back to school I was like why is the map different yeah. You know, who, who redrew the entire map of Eastern Europe? And we had to sit here and learn all this stuff. And it was, you know, a, a huge moment because your entire life, the map is the same. And then all of a sudden it's completely redrawn yeah. you know, for, for a sizable region. That's interesting to see it from that perspective. I was an adult already. I was in the military when it came out, when it yeah. happened. Um, or actually my military... Uh, tour in the air force was ending at that time oh okay. i can't remember if i was in or if i was out but yeah. uh but uh so you have more of a more of a grasp on you know the reality of and why and everything oh yeah yeah I yeah, yeah at the age i was it was it was hard to understand i mean like i said you, you spend eight ten twelve years of your life this is how things are you, mm -hmm. know, you go to school and the teachers are like this is this country and this is this country and that's how it always has been and you didn't think it was possible for those to change um you know we weren't deep into world history because like i said i was like 10 years old you know we weren't learning mm -hmm. about you know the the hundred years of war and the the williams invasion of, of uh, england and how you know maps get redrawn over time you know we hadn't gotten there yet and then it happened in yeah. real life yeah. now so it was a, it was a wake up call that hey, maps aren't permanent, you know, maps get redrawn and, and we didn't know that yet because we were still, you know, you know, elementary school stuff, you know, we were That's learning about world wars and stuff like that at the time. Until you mentioned the hundred years war, I forgot what a history buff you actually are. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, I'm a huge history buff, especially military history. Um, especially, you know, uh, 
pre-gunpowder age stuff, you know, the yeah. classical ancient medieval eras. You know, I'm a big history buff with those. Swords and shields and armor mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, talking about maps being redrawn, you know, that, that's fascinating how much maps have been redrawn over time and different regions have changed hands and things like that. Yeah. It is interesting how, and, yeah, I don't want to go into that, man, because that just opens up a hole. Yeah, you'll get you'll get me going for like another two hours if, <laughs> yeah. you, if you open that can of worms. Yeah, yeah. maybe maybe in a future uh, episode, I could have you back yeah. on and talk about some of that stuff if it's relevant. Yeah, we could talk about some existential threats that happened in the past that we made it through. Definitely. Yeah, maybe a little you know perspective maybe on what we're going through now. So, as a kid growing up in the uh, during the Cold War era, or towards the mm -hmm. end of the Cold War anyway, mm -hmm. has, has the threat of global thermonuclear war influenced you in any way as a writer? I know, I know you became a writer later on in life, but mm -hmm. has it? I think it has because, um, you know, when, when you live through something, it affects your mindset and your perspective on things, and it all comes out in the writing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's... 30 years ago. So of course my opinions and views on things have changed over time, but you it's a foundation and it's, you know, layer upon layer that gets built up. You, know, you don't forget what you knew when you were 10 years old, you just modify that. Mm -hmm. And I think growing up in that environment, there was a big us versus them atmosphere at the time. You know, it yeah. was, you know, the West versus the East, the United States versus China and Russia. And you know, it's hard to show you, you, grow up learning that especially as a young child I think it's hard to shake that and um, you know a lot of my writing kind of reflects that us versus them mentality um, doesn't always come out um, as black as black and white as different nations um, you know a, a lot of things I write about involve economic issues so it's the poor versus the rich or it might be uh, you know, I write a lot of fantasy so it's you know one kingdom versus another or once it's home it's you know, different factions trying to rebuild after the alien invasion and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think growing up during, you know, even the end of the Cold War, you know, created that idea of factionalism and kind of cemented that into my mind. And I think that's something I've never been able to shake. You know, I try to be open-minded and I know, you know, not every Russian is a red commie bastard and stuff like that. Um, but you still have that mindset of this is how the world operates. It's us versus them. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of hard to shake that when that's the, the early formative years of your life. And I think that's, you know, still something in the back of my mind. Even though I don't think about it consciously, it still comes out. Let's see. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation regarding the cold war or how nuclear biological and chemical weapons could affect our culture? Our civilization wow um yeah you covered a lot of ground um i think the biggest thing and it's probably the hardest thing is don't worry about it yeah. um if you start worrying about everything you can't control or do anything about you're going to drive yourself crazy <laughs> um we spent decades as a society worrying about nuclear war um, and it drove people crazy and it, it drove society crazy and it created that us versus them atmosphere that I talked about. Um, you know, don't, don't spend a lot of time and energy worrying about it because, you know, if it happens, it happens, you deal with it at the time. 
um, there's not much you can do to prepare for it. And even if it happens, there's not much you can do but react to it and just try to deal with it. Um, you know, like I said, if things are out of your control, worrying about it is not doing you any favors. Sounds like good advice. Thank you. People tend to overreact and I mean, the, the current situation is a perfect example of that. People mm-hmm. Freaking out, running through the stores, buying up everything they can think of that they might need. And then people who yeah. actually need that stuff are, aren't able to buy it. And yeah. You're not doing anybody favors. Yeah. Going I think out there and that, that's a big lesson we can all learn about what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that we need to remember that we're all in this together mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, if it does come to like nuclear holocaust or something, or, you know, as this current situation, you know, evolves, um, you know, you're not going to make it on your own. Um, you know, even though they're telling us, you know, we need to isolate so we don't spread the virus, stuff like that. It's still, we're, we have to come through it together as a community, as a global community. Um, you know, and and buying enough toilet paper for the next five years is not doing your neighbors any favors. Um, you know, and, and if they get sick, you know, they're more likely to contaminate you. And, and, you know, the, the, the airborne virus aside, if somebody doesn't have enough toilet paper and there's hygiene issues, you've got other viruses. You're talking about malaria and stuff like that. You know, um, you know, we're going to compound it with other problems. Um, everybody needs basic food, hygiene, medicine, hoarding that stuff is not doing you any favors because then your neighbors get sick or they get desperate and they show up at your door with a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a situation we want to get into. So if we make sure everybody's taken care of, then we don't have to worry about that situation where um, it breaks out into violence. That, that's something I'm afraid of that, you know, we might be going towards at this point because people are not thinking about their neighbors. Yeah. And unfortunately we're just in the beginning stages of this whole crisis as far mm-hmm. as the United States is concerned. Oh, Other yeah. parts of the world have been experiencing it for you know, weeks and in mm-hmm. China's case, months. Yeah. It, all of East Asia actually has been experiencing, you know, some pretty bad situations for the last couple of months. Um, our friend JJ Shirty is over there in Taiwan. You know, JJ, right? Yeah. yeah. The writer, he's over there in, mm-hmm. in Taiwan and he says, you know, that, that things are pretty bad, but they're getting through it. People are pulling together. The, the biggest concern that he had recently was that he feels or a lot of people in that community feel like the West is putting the blame on Asia and other parts of the world that are not even, uh, not even really responsible for it. Yeah. You know, th- this is, this is a natural phenomenon. You know, this is a disease that, you know, you know the, the the evidence so far that I've that I've looked at. You know what I've absorbed is that it, it came out of you know natural causes, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, one way or the other, right now is not the time to point fingers. Exactly. Um, you know, right now, you know, the, the people that are suffering are are you know everyday people. It's your neighbors. It's the the farmer down the road or the farmer across the world it doesn't matter you know it's it's you know the the guy working at the 7-eleven or the kfc you know it's normal people that are suffering from this and um you know after it's all done and over with you know if somebody didn't 
react like they should have, didn't handle it properly, didn't say the right thing. We can worry about that then, but right now we just need to deal with the situation we have. And we need to realize that it doesn't matter if you're um, white or black or American or French or a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian, it, the virus doesn't care mm-hmm. about all that stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're all humans and we need to, you know, realize that we're all in the same boat together. You know, there, there's, there's nowhere to go. You know, we, we got this planet and the whole planet's covered with this thing. Um, so there's no getting away from it. We got to deal with it together. It, it brings to mind the example of somebody who has a heart attack, right? You, mm-hmm. you go to the doctor or you're taken to the hospital. The doctor's not going to sit there and try to figure out, is your cholesterol too high? Was your blood pressure too high? They're going to treat the disease and get you back on your feet. They're not going to worry about what caused it. Right. Yeah. They're going to treat the condition and get you stable. And then they're going to worry about what caused it and try to do something to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy because that's what we need to do. We need to take care of the immediate crisis and then go back and look and see, okay, is there something we can do to keep this from happening in the future? Right. And what people don't realize, because this is such a slow burn, we're still in the midst of the heart attack as in mm-hmm. as a species. Yeah, yeah. We're we're I think we're still at just that that tingly numb sensation in your arm. <laughs> yeah. We haven't even gotten to the chest pain yet. Exactly. I don't want to be, you know, um, you know, all doom and gloom, but you know, if we want to be realistic and even look at, you know, the the officials, the information they're coming out with. Um, you know, they're saying that this is just the beginning of this. This, this is a long road ahead. You know, it's yeah. not going to get, you know, better before it gets worse. So you have to think on those terms or you're, you're going to be blindsided. Yeah. You know, if you think that this is almost over uh, or you don't understand the gravity of this, it's going to hit you in the face and you're not going to be prepared for it. Right. You know, emotionally or even you know, you might think you have enough uh, food stores and supplies stored up to, to withstand this, but if you're not emotionally prepared for the long term, mm-hmm. and you're going to be, you're not going to be ready for it. And yeah. you need to mentally prepare yourself above all and be prepared for a long, a long haul in this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and of course, that doesn't mean hoarding six months worth of supplies because supply chains are still running the trucks are still running the warehouses are still full of stuff they just have to get it back on the shelves um but it means being ready for you know um you know life to be different there to be new rules for a while sure yeah and i'm not even talking about the impact if you get sick you know if you get sick yeah you have to deal with that but the people around you are uh, are scared and Mm -hmm. they're Everybody needs to just take it down a notch and and be logical about it. Approach Mm -hmm. it in a way that, you know, you know, you need to get through this and you know, you need your neighbors and your friends to be, and and your entire community to be intact when you get to the other side of it. So what can you do to contribute to that? Right. Right. And and the biggest thing is not doing things to help spread it. You know, that's the big message that we're getting. Um, You know, even if you don't get sick, you can pass it on to somebody else and they get sick. And the more people that are sick, the longer it's going to take. And the the bigger hit the economy is going to take and the harder it's going to be to rebound. Um, 
so so if we, if we get ahead of this thing now and um, you know just mitigate the spread as much as possible, you know, that's that's going to shorten the length of time it takes to get out to the other side. Very good words. Thank you. So on that note, I think we'll close this out and uh, and I'm going to put a pin in it so that you and I could revisit some of this uh, at a later time, if that's okay. If you're, if Absolutely. You're yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to come back. I'd love to talk more. Um, you know, I think it'd be interesting, you know, a few months down the road, you know, as things develop and hopefully get better, you know, coming back and, you know, maybe taking a hindsight look at, you know, what's going on and for sure. Yeah. It would be interesting, but yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank okay. you for having me on. Hey, I appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate you coming on and, and contributing to the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could, Anytime. Before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like the listeners to know about what you're working on or what you're doing uh, that they can look forward to from you from a writer perspective or a publishing perspective? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I actually have... Um, few things I'm working on. I have um, a sequel to a cyberpunk story I wrote called Nightlife that's going to be coming out uh, later this year. Um, I also have a couple of fantasy books that I'm working on. Um, They're going to be prequels to a series that I've um, got four books out now called the Ravencrest Chronicles. It's a dark fantasy, flintlock fantasy. Um, It's probably a good opportunity to kind of escape from the real world stuff. And uh, the prequels that are coming out is a duology. I'm getting both of them done before I release them so they can release at the same time as Curse of the Pirate King and Shadow of the Pirate King. And those are actually going to be releasing for free. Um, oh, nice. There's not going to be any charge for either of those. It's going to be, um, you know, to be honest, it's partially a marketing thing, but it's also, you know, give back to the community kind of thing a little bit, put something out there for people. Um, I'm currently in the middle of writing the second one and the first one's with my editor. Um, but I think they'll be out next couple of months or so and how could people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you on social media or any other way uh you can find me on twitter at b underscore k underscore bass um and you can also find me on my website bkbass.com cool okay if there's nothing else bk then uh just we'll leave it there we'll pick this up in a couple months and uh or sooner, you know, if yeah, something comes up and I, I need a correspondent. <laughs> yeah. Who knows the, the world of NBC. Yeah. Yeah. Holler at me anytime. I'm, I'm happy to come on and talk. I appreciate that, BK. Thank you. Absolutely. To, Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. I'll talk to you again, man. All right. Take care now. Yeah. Take care. Well, that was it for this episode, folks. If you have questions or comments about the conversation, you can reach me at deadhandradio at gmail.com or you can connect with me on Twitter at deadhandradio. If you'd like to leave me a voice message that may be included in a future episode of the podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash deadhand forward slash message. You've been listening to Deadhand Radio and this is Andrew Hall. Thanks for listening.